Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to be gathered this morning, Lord, for those that you've brought out. We thank you for them. Lord, we ask that you'd be with us this morning, that you would meet with us, Lord, that you would speak to hearts and minds, that we might grow, be encouraged, uh, and in your word, Lord, that we might leave this place changed, different than the way we came in. I ask that you'd bless in this week, Lord, that you'd protect those who are traveling, and that you'd bless the holidays. We thank you for your grace and mercy. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you've got your Bibles, I'm going to ask that you would turn to Romans chapter 15 and verse 4. I'm going to use this. It's kind of my jumping off text, uh, if you will. We'll start here and go uh, other places, First Chronicles 16, some other places. But Romans 15, 4, Paul writes, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Read it again. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. I want to stress this morning the importance of history, of heritage, of legacy, of the providence of God. We, in in our culture today, and in the world that that we live in, uh, it's quick-moving, fast-paced, always changing. You've got uh, the latest, greatest, newest things today, and, and that will hold until tomorrow when the newest, new, latest, greatest thing will come out. And we jump from thing to thing, and and our society progresses and moves sort of ever forward, never onward, Uh, always going, people always moving, always in a rush. I don't know how much you drive here in South Florida, but look, it's amazing to me that you've got 300 yards from one stoplight to the next, and you've got to hit 80 miles an hour before you get to that next stoplight. Uh, It's like everything in between is a drag race. Um, If you're going to Walmart, you must get there in five minutes or less. Uh, and then you must get home in the same amount of time. It's, it's crazy. People move fast. We move across the country, around the world. We spread out. We find new worlds, new communities to put down roots. But sometimes I think in the midst of all this progress and all this movement, we lose a sense of history. We lose a sense of history. We lose a sense of our roots and who we are, where we came from, our heritage, our lineage. I hope you understand it's important that you understand that your personal history is important. Where you came from, where you were raised, who your parents were, who your grandparents and great-grandparents were, because all of that plays into who you are. The decisions they made, the fears that they have, the hopes, the dreams, all of that preceded you plays into who you are today. I had a professor in college who used to say that that your kids, it's not that where your kids are born that's where they're from, it's where you're from, where your kids are from. So, for example, my son was born here in Florida, but he's not really, in a sense, from Florida. He's from Oklahoma, North Carolina, because that's where his parents are from, and we raise him with those kind of values. You're a product of the people who've come before you. I hope you understand that as well, that your actions, your attitudes will affect your future generations, those who come after you. 
Your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren will have you to blame in part for your actions, your attitudes, what you do in this life. It's the legacy you leave behind you. We have a personal history. At the same time, we have a national history. We've had people who've moved and worked and done great things and made stupid mistakes, and all of these have played into what the United States is and again to who we as Americans are. All of us who are sitting here today got here for the most part because somebody way down the line had the courage to cross an ocean. Be it by airplane or be it by rickety old boat, they had the courage to get on board and cross an ocean. Even if you've got American Indian blood, somebody at some time crossed the Bering Land Bridge as we understand it. Risked everything to move across the northern tundra, not knowing what was in front of them or what they're going to find, but they went. And so because they risked everything in their day, you reap the rewards of that. Because others who've come before us sacrificed, did great things, made great strides, we reap the rewards. We live in a free society. You can speak your mind for the most part. All right, depending on where you're at. You know, you can't go into a, a theater and yell fire. All right, that's bad. But for the most part, you can speak your mind. You can say what you want to say. You can believe to some degree what you want to believe. My students were asking me this week, we were talking about atheism and the existence of God, and I had a student bring up the, the flying spaghetti monster. And I love that. It's a, it's a, a ploy atheists use to say, well, if you can believe in God and, and all those things, I can believe in the flying spaghetti monster. And do you know what, as ridiculous as that sounds, they can. And I think that's great. I'm glad that I live in a country where if you want to, you can pray to a flying spaghetti monster. I think it's stupid, but you've got that right. And it's because of the people who came before you. It's because of the ones who secured that. The point to all this being Israel had the same thing. As you read that text, Paul says, you know what, the Old Testament was given. All these things were written before so that you would have uh, hope going forward. What was written in the former days was written for your instruction that you might learn for endurance and that encouragement and that you would have hope. Israel, if you read all throughout the Old Testament, always doing things to commemorate their past, their history. You've got to build an altar in in Genesis Abraham, anytime God did something in his life, he builds an altar so that he remembers it, so that he has some place to go back to and say, look, at this spot, I came to know God in this way and by this name. And it was a heritage for him and for those who came after him. As the nation develops and and God does things in their lives, they have feasts and festivals and they remember all that God has done for them. They set up memorials, good and bad, so they can say, look, this is what God has done. All of this written so that you could have hope, so that you could be encouraged, so that you could have endurance. This brings me to Thanksgiving, what we're celebrating this week. Over the years, I've, I have personally, I've, I've grown to feel sorry for Thanksgiving because it's crouched in between Halloween and Christmas and, and look, two opposite ends of the spectrum, no doubt, in, in terms of their holidays. But, but how, Thanksgiving is like that middle child that just kind of gets left out anymore. I can say that because I was a middle child. All right, I feel the pain there. All right, I, I get it. Thanksgiving, look, we don't sing, we don't have great Thanksgiving carols that we sing. 
Okay, there's no jolly fat man going to bring anybody gifts. Okay? Nothing like that goes on. And some people, man, even after Halloween's over, November 1st, they start playing Christmas music. Can you believe that? Some in here are probably guilty. There's some I know and, and love very dearly who've been frustrated they can't find Christmas music on the radio yet. All right, so we, we jump ahead. Look, in recent years, the greatest thing Thanksgiving's had going for it is the fact that you can deep fry turkeys now at home. That's been the most exciting thing for a lot of people. But there's more to Thanksgiving than that. There's more than what our, our modern culture tries to drown out. Granted, we don't, you know, again, we don't get free candy and you don't get to dress up like on Halloween and it's not spooky. And you don't get gifts and lights and, and the songs and all the things that come with the Christmas season. Thanksgiving's important. What it commemorates, what it celebrates, what it tries to call us to is important. Every culture has had some form of a Thanksgiving. Every culture has had some way of commemorating the past. We talked about Israel. Turn back in your Bibles, First Chronicles 16. First Chronicles 16. I realize translations are different, but in First Chronicles 16 and verse 7 is David has brought the Ark of the Covenant back up to Jerusalem. And he is celebrating the Ark of the Covenant, what God has done and what this Ark represents. It says in verse 7, then on that day David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. And from verses 8 through 36, you find this song. If you've ever been tired in a song service, be grateful we don't sing from verse 8 to 36. That word, though, in verse 7, I thanksgiving be given, at least in my translation, I'm certain in whatever translation you have, it's something along those lines. Every culture had this idea of a day set aside or time set aside to give thanks for what God has done. Even as you come to the Americas, prior to the pilgrims, you had the Spanish who had days of thanksgiving. The Indians, even in their pagan cultures, had days of, of givings of thanks for what they've reaped from nature, for what they've reaped in their harvest. Everybody in history has understood it's important that you have a time set aside. The pilgrims first celebrate their harvest in the fall of 1621 after enduring their first harsh winter on the new continent, in the new world. They celebrate. According to history, there were 90 Indians present and 50 colonists. A hundred pilgrims had made sure the year before, but now only 50 were left. That's a 50% casualty rate. That's not good. 50 survived. 90 Indians, they were outnumbered by folks that, that Americans would later on come to consider their enemies, outnumbered by almost 2 to 1, and yet the Indians helped and didn't harm. And they celebrate a thanksgiving for what God has done in this new world. In our modern history, Abraham Lincoln, President Lincoln, made it an official federal holiday in 1863. In the heart of the Civil War, as a nation's trying not to tear itself apart, as brothers are fighting each other on a battlefield for something they should never have had to fight for because it should have been dealt with years and years before. And now they're shedding blood on battlefields across the land. Lincoln sets it aside. Why? 
Because in 1863, the tide had turned. This is right after Gettysburg in July. The nation has hope again. Lincoln wants to give thanks to God. He makes it a federal holiday. As you come into this week again, and I want to drive this point all throughout, remember what Thanksgiving is all about. Those who've come before, an opportunity, a time to give thanks to God. First, I want you to see God's pilgrims, those that we really trace our concepts of Thanksgiving to today. God's pilgrims, they take their name from 1 Peter 2.11. The idea that you are strangers and sojourners in this world. They took that literally, this idea that they were pilgrims in this world. They were just literally passing through. This world wasn't really their home. They were looking to move on to other worlds. They were religious exiles, persecuted in England. They flee England. They head for Holland, hoping to find asylum there. Holland is religiously free, but it's also extremely secular, even in that day. They fear losing their heritage, their culture, their faith. And so a group of them decide that, you know what, we're going to do something that that sounds crazy. We're going to sail across an ocean to a land we've never seen, to a place that we don't know, that is inhabited by peoples we don't understand, and we're going to try to build a new life there. We're going to try to do something different in this new world. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to set up a government. We're going to set up a town, a colony, where people can worship God as they see fit, so long as they're not hurting someone else. And 102 people get on board the Mayflower. And for two months they sail. They're not allowed above deck. The crew of the Mayflower won't let them above deck because you, you know, get in the way kind of thing. And it was stormy. You imagine 102 people packed in below deck for roughly two months on stormy seas. That does not sound fun in any way, shape, or form. That is not a cruise right across the beautiful North Atlantic. Uh, that is misery. They're cramped. The seas are rough. And they encounter storms, again, most of the way. But they make it. All right, they put down roots. Look, I want you to understand, one of the things that you can see in this, how did they get to the New World? Because in England there was persecution. Do you know that throughout history, God has used persecution as a way to scatter the seeds of the gospel? As a way to break Christians up when we get sort of too comfortable where we're at. When we get too entrenched in where we're at, when the faith grows stale, and when it grows unproductive, God brings persecution, and it breaks things up, and it sends it out, and the gospel spreads. Out of what appears to be evil, good comes. If not for persecution in England, maybe the pilgrims never leave. Maybe somebody else comes. Maybe something else different happens in history. While they travel, there's storms that throw them off course. They originally intend to land in the mouth of the Hudson River, what they considered at that time to be the Virginia colony. They wanted to land in the Virginia colonies because then they would be under the king's charter. They would have some kind of jurisdiction. Instead, the storms blow them off course. They end up outside of Cape Cod, 9 November, 1620. They don't know exactly what to do, where to go. They, want, they try to sail south, but there are shoals that keep them from going as far south as they want. So they say, you know what, we'll just stay here instead of risking being cast aside on the rocks and destroyed. And so they sit, and they wait for about six weeks. 
And on board the Mayflower, they, they draw up the Mayflower Compact, this incredible document that's going to be one of the, the sort of foundation stones, if you will, for the, for the thinking of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and the kind of life that we have today. And they set on that wretched ship for six weeks and hammer this out. What kind of society are we going to have? And you know, they got to Cape Cod and where they were at because the storms put them there. Sometimes in life it is the case that the storms that we think are blowing us off course are really putting us back on the course that God wants us on. It is sometimes the case that he uses these storms in our life, both, both maybe physically and, and uh, spiritually, to put us in the positions where he wants us to be. To move us in ways that we would never have moved ourselves. Why? Because he is provident in all things, because he is sovereign in all things, because he knows the beginning from the end, and he knows where he wants to take you and what he wants to do with you. And sometimes we don't always see that. They finally leave the ship on 21 December with the Mayflower Compact intact, having been signed willingly by all the men on the ship. And it sets up a society again wherein you have an equal voice, where there's rule. The Mayflower Compact guaranteed liberty in the context of law. Because here's the deal, you can't ever have liberty unless you have law. We live in a society today that thinks, you know what, if, I could, if we could just get rid of all the laws, we'd be free. If we could just somehow get rid of all these things and leave man to his own devices, life would be better. No, it wouldn't. Can you imagine if you were to leave this church today and somehow the federal government had, had declared null and void all traffic laws? Look, no stop signs, yield signs, stoplights, lane things. None of that matters anymore. Now I realize in parts of South Florida it doesn't matter anyway. But I'm saying in general, all right, none of this matters anymore. Would you really want to get out on the roads? No. All right, we drive, and, and even though it's frustrating at times, there's a system set up to kind of make it safe, to kind of provide some order. Why, again, because you have to have law to really have liberty. The pilgrims understood this. With the Mayflower Compact guiding them, they set up their society. They work, they develop, and again, it's the roots, it's the seeds, if you will, of what later becomes the United States. Their influence is going to be befelt not just in New England, but up and down the colonies, and then indeed around the world because of what they did, the risks that they took. They developed friendly relations with the local Indians, signed a peace treaty, with Chief Massasoit of the Wampanoags that lasted for 55 years. You think about that, if you, if you know anything about the history of the United States and how they have dealt with American Indians, it's not good. Spotty at best. But here you've got a group of pilgrims, not politicians, a group of Christians who are able to reach out and work with a culture that is extremely different from them, about as different as you can get. And for 55 years, they live in peace. Why? Because tolerance and diversity are spiritual ideas, not political policies. You cannot force a tolerance and diversity because of political, political, or, I'm sorry, political ideals what you want to accomplish political, it has to come from the foundation and a heart and a mind that is spiritual and in nature. When a person knows Christ as the pilgrims did, or at least as, as many in their culture did, 
They're not threatened by those that are different, that those they disagree with. They love them in Christ and understand that there's a difference that they need the gospel. And that leads to an ability to work together even in the midst of disagreement. These same Indians, again, because of the grace of God, I, I believe that because of the grace of God, they welcomed the pilgrims in. Again, as I mentioned, from 1620, throughout that winter, it's Chief Mastoit and the Wampanoags and Squanto and these guys who trained the pilgrims how to survive in this new world, how to hunt, how to fish, how to plant crops. They provide for them so that in 1621, in that fall, they can get together and celebrate what God has done in the new world. It's an incredible story. And God moved and worked in every bit of it. And because they did what they did, you and I enjoy today the things that we enjoy. You have the nation that you have today because of what went on nearly 400 years ago. That's an incredible thing. I hope you understand as well that ideas always have consequences. Good ideas, bad ideas, as they play out, all history is is the outworking of ideas, good or bad. In this case, some very good ideas that we feel the effects of today. One thing I would, I think that terrifies me sometimes, is what are the ideas of this age going to do to the people of the next? The ideas that are heralded in the popular culture, in the music, in the media. A philosopher years ago said, let me write the songs of a nation, and I'll care not who writes her laws. You know why that's terrifying? Because people pay more attention to the popular philosophy, if you will, in music and television shows than they do in laws. And when you consider what's out there, you ever listen to secular radio by and large? It is terrifying if people imbibe and try. I tell my students, you could not possibly live the life that many of the songs and the TV shows promote and say are great and awesome and glorify and all these things. You could not possibly live those lives if you really wanted to be successful in this world. You simply could not. Ideas have consequences. Second thing I want you to understand is God's providence in history. God's providence, always moving, always working. Acts chapter 17, you don't have to turn there, but uh, you're certainly welcome to. Acts 17, 26 is Paul preaching in Athens on the Oropagus, this place where you would herald ideas. And in the midst of this incredible sermon, he makes a statement, speaking of God, and he says, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Paul says, you know what the point to history is? To know Christ. Do you know why nations exist? To come to Christ. That God has allotted their time and their place, that is, for every nation on the face of the earth from now, uh, throughout the history of civilization, has existed because God allowed it to exist. And in fact, he set the times of their boundaries, that is, you will will exist from here to here, and you will go no further than this. This This is as far as your empire will stretch. And he does all of this, why, Paul says, so that you might, so that they might, should seek God and hope that they might find him. You see, his desire is that all men should come to the knowledge of the truth. That all men would come to know Christ, and he has set nations up for that purpose. Why? To provide law so that you can have liberty, so that you can pursue Christ. That is the point to nations. That you will have boundaries. That God rules 
in the affairs of men. As a student of history and scripture, I'll be honest with you, I don't believe in coincidences at all. I think when you study history, you come to the realization that it is one giant epic story. And there's different people and different players and different roles, and they come and they go, and it's all heading towards an end point. You're moving from point A to point B, and we know in Revelation to some degree what point B is. We don't know necessarily when it's going to get here, but all of us in this grand story have our parts to play. We are here for a reason. God is sovereign. He does what he will in the earth. He causes kingdoms to rise and kingdoms to fall. Proverbs 21.1, this idea that the heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord. You realize as, as much as we might get stressed out with politics, and, and I, I'll be honest, I do sometimes. I sometimes look at the American people and I think, how, what, why did you vote for this person? Because they're so obviously wrong. They disagree with me. All right, and we all think that way. Whatever, wherever you fall on the political spectrum, you look at that and you say, look, are, the rest of, are, are my fellow Americans, are they, they idiots? How could they go with this? But you know what? The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. I think one of the more terrifying non-scriptural quotes I've ever heard is that a nation gets the leadership it deserves. And I think it's very true. I think it's true as well that judgment starts at the house of God. We look at a nation that we're not completely happy with. I think as opposed sometimes to, to pointing all of the fingers, if you will, out there, sometimes we need to examine ourselves and where we're at in the will and the plan of God. The heart of the king in the hand of God. God does what he will. Think of these things from history. Hopefully you're familiar with Alexander the Great. Those 400 years in between the Old Testament and New Testament. And in Bible, Bible study, scholarship, it's called the silent period, when in reality it was anything but silent. Alexander the Great rises to power in Macedonia, does something in his 20s that, that seems impossible in conquering the known world. His army moves out. They literally, nobody can stop him. He's brilliant. You ever read his battles? What he's able to do, how he thinks, uh, how he plans and strategizes. Incredibly brave individual. A man who at 28 breaks down and cries because there's no more worlds left to conquer. Look, when I was 28 and I read about Alexander the Great, and, or, you know, as I would study him, it was incredibly depressing. Because at 28, he's conquered the world. You know, at 28, I was a, an assistant pastor. You're kind of like, doesn't seem equivalent. Incredible individual. And as he goes, he Hellenizes. He demands that you change your culture. You will speak Greek. We'll build roads for you, but you will speak Greek. You will become a part of our culture. You will know our plays. You will know our writing. You will use our architecture, and you will use our currency. The Hellenization of the ancient world. Alexander the Great does this. After his death, as his kingdom falls apart, the hands of four generals, it still stays to some degree Hellenized. From those four generals, you get two. From those two, you get one. And from that one comes Rome. And it's in the Roman Empire that the Messiah is born. Galatians 4.4, 4, Scripture says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive his adoption as sons. When the fullness of time had come, 
You don't think God was moving in Alexander the Great hundreds of years prior? You don't think God was present because Alexander the Great was not a Bible-believing Christian? You don't think God was present on those battlefields working his will so that the fullness of time would come? That God didn't direct and guide so that you would have an empire when Christ was born that had roads, that had security, that had safety, that had a common language, that had a common currency so that you could travel and so that the gospel could explode across the face of the known world and thereby change history. You don't think God didn't know what he was doing? Absolutely provident. And when the fullness of time was come, he sent forth his son. In Acts 16 again, You know the story, some of you, of Paul's missionary journeys. Paul desperately wanted to go to Asia. And Scripture says in Acts 16 and verse 6 that the Holy Spirit forbidding. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to my Asia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by my Asia, they went to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Two other places Paul wanted to go, and God said, No, you will go to Macedonia. Do you realize that as you sit here today, there is a huge difference between the West and the East? between Europe and the United States and between India and China. Do you know why? Acts 16.6. The gospel went to Europe and not Asia. As the gospel goes to Europe, as Paul and the apostles, the other disciples take the gospel and they spread, and it spreads from Europe on up into places like France, which is still Europe, but France and the British Isles. And it changes those cultures, and it changes how those people think, and it changes those societies. And then those peoples cross the Atlantic, and they plant colonies in a new world. And those ideas follow them, and those new ideas develop. And you have, again, the United States. You don't think God knew what he was doing? Way back in Acts 16.6, when he says, Nope, you will not go to Asia. You will go to Macedonia. He changes history. When you look in Europe at the Reformation, at the publication of the King James Bible in 1611, we don't use it as much anymore, but you consider a Bible that for nearly 350 years was the standard in Christianity. A Bible that has influenced the language everybody uses today. A Bible that shaped cultures and societies. You don't think God knew what he was doing when it's published in 1611? He moves in history. You have the pilgrims, as we've talked about, what God does with them as he scatters them through persecution as they plant a society, as the colonies arise and they value religious freedom. As the Declaration of Independence is written, Thomas Jefferson, really one of my favorite founding fathers, he's intriguing, doesn't believe in the miraculous, cuts his Bible up. Wished I could have talked to him, but he cuts his Bible up. But when you read the Declaration of Independence, that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He grounds his thinking in the Declaration of Independence and the idea that you are created special by God and therefore have special rights in this world. You don't get the Declaration of Independence without any other foundation than this book. You don't think that's shaped who we as Americans are? 
God works in history. He has worked to, to cause nations to rise and to fall. But third, and maybe most importantly, I want you to understand that God works in you, in your personal history. Jeremiah 5.1, uh, you don't need to turn there, Jeremiah, I'm sorry, 1.5, as, as he is calling Jeremiah, he says, I knew you in the womb. I fashioned you the way I want you to be. Later on in Jeremiah 29.11, a verse that most people know, for I know the plans that I have for you, the thoughts that I have for you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace, prosperity, not of destruction. Now that promise is specifically to Jeremiah and Israel, but I think there's a principle there that applies to Christians as well, and that is that God does not desire to destroy you, but rather that God desires to prosper you in His way. It doesn't mean you get you know, one of those incredible yachts like they have in Fort Lauderdale. You might, but that's not necessarily what it is. But He will prosper you. And He has got a plan for you. And you know what you are as you sit here today? You are not an accident. You are not just merely the byproduct of your circumstances. You are the individual that God has been crafting you to be. You are intelligently designed, not just biologically, but in terms of your history. You were born where God wanted you to be born. You have the parents that God wanted you to have, the siblings, believe it or not, that God wanted you to have. All right? You are where He wants you to be. He is crafting you, designing you. You've had the hardships, the struggles, the sufferings, the blessings, the victories, all of these things to be made the person that God wants you to be. You are intelligently designed. You were meant to be here. You were created to know God, to serve Him. And when you do these things, when you seek to know Him, when you seek to serve Him, it is in this that you will find your meaning. It is in this that you will find this this completeness that everybody's looking for. Showing a video to my classes called Expelled about the modern university seeking to get rid of the concept of intelligent design and their persecution of these scientists. And there's, there's one individual who's, who's really remarkable. Atheist, claims to be a former Christian, Dr. Provine. Individual suffering with a brain tumor. And he makes a point at one point in the film. He says, look, I've had a brain tumor, and if it comes back, I will shoot myself in the head because I'm not going to endure the suffering. My brother, he says, died of ALS. I'm not going to do that to myself. I will end it. And Ben Stein, the, the man who made the film, said, you know what, I, I, hope, he's, I hope he's not going to be true to that because shortly after they filmed that scene, his brain tumor came back. Done some research, and Dr. Provine is still alive. You know why? Dr. Provine's an atheist. Doesn't believe there's a life after death. Doesn't believe, in fact, he says in the video, there's no meaning, there's no morality, there's no right or wrong, there's no, there's no nothing. He says, I'm okay with that. Look, if he was really okay with that, he wouldn't be a teacher. He teaches because he believes that his teaching has meaning, has value. He gets up in the morning because he believes it makes a difference. And his actions betray what he really believes. Same true for every one of us. We can say all day long what we, what we think, what we want others to think we believe, but our actions define us. He's still alive. He hasn't killed himself. Why? Because he wants to live. He wants to have meaning. But you only find that in the person of Christ in a relationship with God. You were created to know him. You look at the book of Esther, an incredible book in the Old Testament. Never mentions God's name, but he's all over it. Working in every part of it. 
He brings Esther to the palace. Esther wins uh, the American Idol type competition for beauty. Gets into the palace. Becomes the queen. And as the king issues this crazy edict that all the Jews are going to be killed because of one man's jealousy. And her uncle goes to Mordecai and he says, Listen, Esther, you need to say something. She's like, I could die if I go into the presence of the king. He says, Look, who knows as to whether or not you were brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. And if you don't do this, deliverance will rise up from somewhere else. I want you to understand, just like Esther, every one of us, you're here today for such a time as this. Yeah, it seems dark outside those doors. It's not friendly. It's, it, it seems to be getting worse for Christians. But you were brought here for such a time as this. You were designed by God to be here for such a time as this. You know, the great thing about all of this is not only does God want to use us, but he won't just use us in our success. He is capable of using us in our failures. I can't tell you how many times I've made the wrong decision. But God is merciful to fools and idiots. And that's not in the Bible, but I claim it all the time. All right? Made some terrible decisions. And probably every person out there has. We've all got bruises and scars. But God uses us anyway, doesn't he? He uses even the bad decisions that are made to be a blessing in our lives and in the lives of others. Because he's always sovereign. He's always had providence that is watchful care over us. And even in our heartaches, he's working. Bringing it full circle back to First Chronicles 16. David's song of thanksgiving. In verse 12, he says this, Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. As David calls Israel to this time of thanksgiving, he says, look, remember what God has done. I would encourage you all, as you get together with family this week, if you're fortunate enough to be able to get together with family this week. Mr. Smith mentioned earlier that he always has strong feelings when he's with his family. Look, sometimes I do too. It's not the same kind of feelings that he has with his. All right? Sometimes there's dysfunction, but if you are fortunate enough to have your family this week, Remember the wondrous works God has done for you. The blessings you've had in this life, what God has done and how he's worked your salvation, if nothing else. Remember what God has done in your nation. Remember the pilgrims, what they sacrificed, the risk they took, the people they buried, so that you could be here to enjoy the liberties, the freedoms, the prosperities that you enjoy now. Don't overlook Thanksgiving. Remember his wondrous works. The second thing David calls them to in verse 15, remember his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. Remember God's promises to you. Remember that as you look on the past and you thank him for his wondrous works and hopefully you know him in the present and his work in your life, remember as the future comes and you don't know what it holds. And, and yeah, there's sometimes there's fear and you see crazy things going on. Remember his covenant, his promises to you that he has a plan, a purpose, a will, that he intends good and not evil, and that all things work together for good and not evil. And remember that in the end, again, we really do win. All right, We may not conquer in this world, but there's a better world coming. 
There is, we may not have all that we wish in the temporary, but there's an eternity. I'd much rather be prepared for eternity than this temporal world. So remember God's work in thanksgiving. The pilgrims, those who've come before us, remember that he is in control of all things. That he's designed you, that he's worked. Remember his works. Remember his covenant. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for the opportunity to be here this morning for those that you've brought out. And we ask that you would take your word, that we would see its application in our lives and our hearts. Holy Spirit, that you'd be free to move and work. ask that you'd be with us this week, again in this time, that we would be grateful of your works, that we'd remember all the good that you've done. Father, that we would look forward to what you're going to do, trusting, hoping in you, Lord, because of your great love, your great power, because you're sovereign. We thank you and praise you, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.